To support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more. Your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to TriviumStudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. That's sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again. On April 20th, in response to the coronavirus guidelines that have been issued by the Trump administration, Newsweek published a photo essay that documented the protests taking place across the country. In photos, protesters held signs with numerous slogans that were apparently raising eyebrows across the U.S. and the rest of the world. Those slogans included, quote, I want a haircut, let my people golf, and my body, my choice. Three days earlier, the New York Times published the following text from its agency in Austin, Texas, quote, Dave Luttrell stood at a socially undistant length from his fellow protesters on Saturday. Some shook hands, others hugged. More than a few hundred people rubbed elbows and shoulders, their signs and flags touching, many with their faces unmasked. Mr. Luttrell, 46, held his six-year-old daughter as those surrounding him chanted to reopen the American economy outside the state capitol building in downtown Austin. I don't fear a potential pathogen, he said of the fast-spreading coronavirus that had compelled most governors to shut down their states, including the closing of non-essential businesses. I think that there's potential pathogens all around us all the time, and for the most part, we're healthy. Mr. Luttrell, wearing a MAGA-style red cap, reading Make Austin Weird Again, is a bartender in Texas's city, capital city. At least he used to be. The restaurant where Mr. Luttrell works has cut his shift to a five hours a week from 35. He's started getting unemployment, end quote. Only four days later, the New York Times published a follow-up article that began with the following text, quote, groups in loose coalition have tapped their networks to drive up turnout at recent rallies in state capitals and finance lawsuits, polling, and research to combat the state home orders. Among those fighting the orders are FreedomWorks and the Tea Party Patriots, which played pivotal roles in the beginning of the Tea Party protests starting more than a decade ago. Also involved are a law firm led partly by former Trump White House officials, a network of state-based conservative policy groups, and an ad hoc coalition of conservative leaders known as Save Our Country that has advised the White House on strategies for for a tiered reopening of the economy." The New York Times wasn't the only site to pick up stories um, with this sort of tone. NBC Montana, here in my home state, noted that, quote, they were promoting fear and fear-mongering and providing legitimacy for a network of extremists in western U.S. states at a time when hundreds of Washingtonians and thousands more Americans are dying from coronavirus, end quote. What's more, on M. Earlier this week on MSNBC, 
One of their guests referred to the protesters as a Fox News Nazi death cult of the GOP. When I first started seeing these headlines, I wasn't especially surprised because I figured there would be protests um, due to the violations of civil liberties that some people are perceiving in the coronavirus lockdown. However, I didn't expect the media to take such a harsh tone against the protesters, especially considering the kind of curious, silly, original tone that was present throughout their articles. The question then arose in my mind, the question that we'll be answering in today's podcast, why the shift in rhetoric on, the, on behalf of the media? Why the change in tone from strange signs to a Fox News Nazi death cult? What could have prompted this dramatic shift in the way we are characterizing these protests? And how can that teach us something else about the state of our democracy currently? Welcome to the Pursuit of Trivium, Rhetoric, Logic, and Grammar for the Modern Age, the newest podcast from the Trivium Studios Network. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and in this show, we hope to explore the narratives that shape our world, the reasons behind the rhetoric, and the people crafting the words. For more details on today's episode, don't forget to check the show notes attached to this post on our website, triviumstudios.org. Continuing along last edition's line of reasoning, in this episode, we will go further down the coronavirus rabbit hole, exploring the ways in which rhetoric surrounding the discussion is shaping our response. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy The Pursuit of Trivium, Season 1, Episode 2, Introducing the Infodemic. Just over a century ago, a different pandemic was raging on the global stage. The, war, the world was preoccupied with the First World War, and as such, the response to the pandemic was limited at first. A second wave, however, proved much more deadly, and the responses to the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 were documented for the rest of history to see. An article published in 2009 in Nature magazine notes that, quote, the U.S. government used the same strategy for communicating about the disease that it had developed to disseminate war news. The essence of that strategy was described by its main architect, writer Arthur Bullard, who said, truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. There is nothing in experience to tell us one is always preferable to the other. The force of an idea lies in its inspirational value. It matters very little if it is true or false. Fellow advisor Walter Lippmann, another architect of the strategy, sent President Woodrow Wilson a memo saying that most citizens were, quote, mentally children and advising that, quote, self-determination had to be subordinated to, quote, order and prosperity. In 1917, the day after receiving Lippmann's memo, Wilson issued an executive order to control all government communication strategy during the war that was premised on keeping up morale. This played an important role in the way in which the response to the Spanish flu happened in whatever country you happen to be present in. Another essay published in Al Jazeera in 2019 notes that, quote, the war was, though the war was coming to an end by the time the disease arrived in the U.S., the media was still largely self-censoring. 
For instance, in Philadelphia, where the biggest parade in the city's history was planned to celebrate the end of the war, the medical community warned journalists it should be cancelled. Barry told Murhead, quote, Reporters were writing stories, editors were killing the stories. The parade went ahead, attended by hundreds of thousands of people, and 48 hours later, the, the typical incubation period of influenza, people started falling ill. The disease really exploded in the city, Barry said, adding, and that happened to be one of the hardest hit cities in the country, if not the world. Finally, a paper published in 2015 notes that, quote, the result was that as dread increasingly became attached to influenza, it destabilized medical attempts to regulate the civilian response to the pandemic, undermining Owen's and the Norcliffe Press's uh, emotives of stoicism, end quote. All three of those papers note the way in which Wilson's control over the media and the media's willingness to self-censor in support of the war affected the media's coverage of the um, 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. The second and third articles go on to note that despite the end of the war coming to a head, there was still censorship on behalf of the press in the United States and that self-censorship led to flu outbreaks during the second wave of the disease. The final paper notes that despite the media's attempts to keep the U.S. involved in the war, the dread attached to the influenza outbreak or eventually overcame the media's attempts at stoicism, thereby drowning out the media's narrative regarding the end of the First World War. Drawing on all of this knowledge, researchers have attempted to learn from the past. One study, published in 2014 by the BMC Journal of Public Health, noted that, quote, First, the role of traditional media co coverage continues to matter and needs to be scrutinized more closely, given that the, um, the emergence and reproduction of certain topoi is likely to directly affect the understanding of the risk at hand, both in public debates and policy ones. It is also likely to contribute to the identification of best responses and the setting of priorities about how to respond nationally and internationally to a pandemic emergency. Moreover, while some framings are more stable or recurrent than others, others vary from pandemic to pandemic or shift throughout the course of the same crisis. These dominant media framings are also likely to leave certain legacies or dependency paths that affect the preparedness planning that precedes a future pandemic event, making their timely and close investigation even more pressing." End quote. Moreover, research published by the British Sociological Association in 2018 revealed that, quote, mass media reports affect social behavior that ultimately affects transmission of disease. However, an individual's response to a media stimulus will wane over time, end quote. This is the exact same lesson that the media learned during the pandemic outbreak of 1918. Looking back on the 1918 pandemic of the Spanish flu, we can learn that the media essentially acts as a gatekeeper. This is essentially the findings of the second two studies. The media interfaces between pandemic response and the rest of society, therefore guiding the way in which the public perceives the response and perceives their own safety. The media then becomes 
critical in times of epidemic insofar as the essential um, control of the response or insofar as they are essential to the control of the response to the pandemic. In World War I, the media supported the war, so they tried to hide the influence of the pandemic. They tried to downplay its impact in the United States, and this resulted in pandemic outbreak, especially in the city of Philadelphia, for example. If that is indeed the case, it proves that the media in its pandemic response oftentimes acts on its own interests as well. That being said, in order to discover what it is that guided the shift in rhetoric surrounding the coronavirus protests, maybe we can take a look at what it is they currently support. Partisanship, as defined by Oxford English Dictionary, is, quote, prejudice in favor of a political cause or bias. Partisanship has become a major part of the American political landscape over the past decade or so. We hear it constantly, exploited by the media, exploited by our politicians, dividing our nation and making it harder for us to pass legislation and get anything done here in this country. However, looking back on the data, it appears as though the spike in partisanship occurred around 2008, according to a Gallup study from, um, according to a Gallup poll from later that decade. Moreover, according to a study from the University of Michigan in 2017, the shift in media coverage occurred right around 2010. Moreover, the Project for Excellence in Journalism and Harvard University's Joan Shorstein Center on Press, Politics, and Public Policy conducted a study of 5,374 media narratives and assertions about the presidential candidates from January 1st through March 9th, 2008. The study found that Obama received 69% favorable coverage and Clinton received 67% compared to only 43% cover favorable media coverage of McCain. This is perhaps the most notable feature of the media landscape that shifted around the same time as the spike in partisanship occurred within the United States. This shift in media coverage can, in some ways, explain the ways in which the spike in partisanship occurred. The causes are rather complex. Um, you can see the show notes for a more complete explanation. However, according to Truth and Partisan Media in the USA, Conservative Talk Radio, Fox News, and the Assault on Objectivity, a paper published in 2012 studying the occurrences of the late 20th century and early 21st century, quote, the undisputed truth paradigm in journalism since its adoption by the profession, the objectivity norm, seems to have failed to serve its purpose on many counts, end quote. That paper, rather long and available on our website, first notes that in the 1920s, the American media establishment was developed as a profession of objectivity. They were focused on objective reporting of the truth. This is compared to the European style of political journalism um, known as perspective press, which it doesn't claim to take an objective reality, instead approaching an event or an occurrence from a, um, a certain perspective. However, according to the report, 
The rise of conservative talk radio, especially the syndication of Rush Limbaugh's talk radio show in 1998, had two primary effects. First of all, it redefined this objectivity in terms of fair playtime. Rush Limbaugh was concerned with the lack of media coverage that conservative issues were receiving and therefore recoined objectivity as merely a measure of time spent talking. The other um, major effect of the syndication of Rush Limbaugh's radio show was the coalition of the official media sources or media outlets. It was now more important than ever that you were with an official media source rather than just being on a conservative talk radio outlet and this gave rise to what would later be known as the mainstream media. Now as the conservative talk radio side of the media and the official landscape grew further and further apart, a major event in American history happened to occur, thereby redefining the way in which Americans uh, approach the official media. The Bush 9-11 in response, or the Bush administration in response to 9-11 cracked down on media establishments, much as Woodrow Wilson did before the First World War. The Bush administration requested from media agencies a certain amount of respect and support for what was going on in the Middle East and the Bush administration's objectives there. However, the Bush administration only really had control over the official media networks, and after the Bush administration's excesses in the region were later exposed, the trust in official media sources almost never recovered. The Truth and Partisan Media in the USA essay goes on to note that, quote, the definition of quality journalism as precluding the representation of specific political perspectives seems to point to confusion between the perspectival approaches approaching news from a specific political angle and the partisan advocating a political ideology in the way the U.S. news media conceives of journalism, which in turn prompted the emergence of a type of staunchly partisan conservative media, now a central force in the news media ecology. The reconfiguration of the media ecology since the late 1980s also seriously questions the validity of the norm. Journalists' failure to establish or seek the truth in the aftermath of 9-11 provides evidence that the norm malfunctions in extreme and unprecedented circumstances, as the affirmation of truthiness during the Bush years indicates. In the same way, the ever-increasing news media offer in the kaleidoscope post-broadcast media ecology produces a fragmenting and polarizing effect on audiences, which seriously jeopardizes the possibility of a citizenry sharing common patterns of representation of the world, a trend the objectivity norm seems to have been unable to contain. These three elements are a testament to the failure of objectivity as a model to safeguard the credibility of the profession. We all know that the news media has been struggling in recent years, and that um, excerpt describes it in almost perfect terms. However, this fragmentation of the media led us to the situation we are presented with today, namely an infodemic combined with a pandemic. Quote, we're not just fighting an, info an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. 
said Tedros Gaiabrisis, Director General of the World Health Organization, at a gathering of foreign policy and security experts in Munich, Germany, at a, in mid-February, referring to fake news that spreads faster and more easily than the virus. The HWO explains that infodemics are an, are an excessive amount of information about a problem, which makes it difficult to identify a solution. They can spread misinformation, disinformation, and rumors during a health emergency. Infodemics can hamper an effective public health response and create confusion and distrust among people. In response, a team of HWO Mythbusters are working with search and media companies like Facebook, Google, Pinterest, um, Tencent, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and others to counter the spread of rumors, which include misinformation like that the virus cannot survive in hot weather, that taking a high dose of chloroquine medication can prevent you, and that consuming large quantities of ginger and garlic can prevent the virus. These companies, according to news reports, are aggressively filtering out unfounded medical advice, hoaxes, and other false information that they say could risk public health. In a rare move, Facebook and Twitter have taken down a post from a head of state that falsely stated that a drug was working everywhere against the coronavirus. The HWO, along with the United Nations, who published the previous article, have recognized that the coronavirus pandemic has been spurred along by something even more malicious, an infodemic. They have partnered with private corporations to help combat this misinformation, and Facebook has begun threatening some protests, ads, and or has started treating some protests, ads, and posts as harmful misinformation, taking them down. Not surprisingly then, COVID-19 has become a partisan issue. Quote, citizens judge the viral threat according to their pol politics, polling indicates. More Democrats than Republicans have told pollsters that they were extremely concerned about coronavirus by a 20-point margin. A poll released on Friday showed that the viewers of conservative Fox News, which spent weeks downplaying and dismissing the virus, were much less likely to take the pandemic seriously. In combating the infodemic, it's not surprising that the media has created a partisan issue. This is clearly represented in the polling as well, seeing as multiple pollsters have found that the coronavirus has become more partisan since it began. Let's return then to the essential question of today's podcast. Namely, what caused the shift in rhetoric that led to this partisan divide? Was it the infodemic that was plaguing the media up to this point? Although they might blame it on this fact, I think it's essentially the opposite that led to the situation we're dealing with today. An article published by Reason Magazine, in response to the articles published about the protests by the New York Times, Guardian Magazine, Washington Post, and other magazines, noted that, quote, after last week's protest around the Michigan Capitol, a picture of someone holding a large swastika flag that said Trump Pence began circulating on social media as a sign that the supposed Nazi leanings of Trump supporters and the people protesting. 
But after some viral outrage about the kind of people the conservative organizers of these protests were in cahoots with, it turns out that the picture in question actually came from a March 2nd Bernie Sanders rally in Boise, Idaho. If this is really the case, if signs are being manufactured or misrepresented, if um, protesters holding signs that say things like, uh, I need a haircut, are characterized as a Fox News Nazi death cult, what could be the cause of this? Well, according to Axios reporting, this year's spending on political advertising has topped $1 billion. And as we previous sta previously stated, since the syndication of the Rush Limbaugh News Network in 1988, the mainstream media outlets have been struggling, spurred on by the post 9-11 loss of trustworthiness. However, news media is key every four years to something not pandemic, but rather political, the US general election. Although $1 billion is a lot of advertising to have already been spent on the political campaigns, there is no secret that hundreds of thousands, if not millions and billions of dollars, are spent by candidates each year in each and every state. This means that these political ads have to be promoted somewhere. They go up on billboards and on signs, that sort of thing, sure, but they mostly go up on media's sites. They are promoted by news media outlets, um, by the networks that own those outlets, that sort of thing. What's more, we as a populace get most of our information regarding the general election from the news media, which means that their uh, importance to the population becomes heightened every four years when the president goes up for the general election. That being said, according to a study first published in The Atlantic in 2014 and repeated since, uh, political advertising is actually largely ineffective. This was most recently repeated in Michael Shermer's book, Giving the Devil Its Due, which spends many pages on this subject, noting that even hundreds of thousands of dollars in political ads are, not, are very much unlikely to change voters' minds. We are, so part of, we are so locked in our partisanship in this country that, we, um, that political advertising has little effect. The question then becomes, these people aren't stupid, they don't want to waste their money, so why do they keep advertising? Well, one answer would be that the media is interested in creating the partisanship in the first place. Now, I know this seems backwards, especially considering that the media is supposed to just be objective description of what's going on in the world, but hear me out. The path that we've just gone on, from the fragmentation of news media and the importance of being in the official news media in the late 20th century, to the loss of trust in the official news media during um, the Bush administration and post 9-11, followed by the coronavirus pandemic and infodemic that is standing on the toes of the um, media's normal revenue stream, namely the U.S. general election, the coronavirus being 
at first primarily a bipartisan issue, to me, this all adds up to the fact that the media is interested in creating partisanship, considering the fact that partisanship leads to competition, which leads to um, further advertising, more politics, which is then good for the media. If one candidate, if one party just blows out the other party in every election, then less um, money is spent on political advertising, less um, voters tune into media coverage of elections, and the media is less necessary. However, as long as the nation is partisanly divided, the media is able to receive its political advertising funds, its once every four year um, showboat, and keep us all interested. Therefore, to me, it makes sense that the media would be interested in creating partisanship, especially considering the fact that the US economy just tanked and they're losing out on the tons of money that they would usually be making off of a very partisan election. It looks like, from my perspective, that there was too much agreement on the coronavirus from the outset. Although Trump immediate, um, or originally protested, he did eventually lock down China, issue guidelines, and defer to health experts. At one point, there was the highest bipartisanship support of experts and the scientific community's response to coronavirus in this nation that there has been to anything for over a decade. For the media, that was just way too much agreement. However, when it comes to coronavirus and when it comes to epidemics more generally, as we discussed earlier, the media recognizes that it is critical in um, providing the news and providing the information that will keep people safe. They learned that in the 1918 pandemic and in what happened to Philadelphia. So they can't just lie to us. Instead, they have to just lead us off the track, making partisan issues out of protesters who just lost their job, making moms into Nazi death cult followers, and I'm sure the conservative media is doing the same for the liberals. The real lesson here isn't that either party is doing something wrong, it's that the parties are wrong in and of themselves. Just as we addressed last episode, the parties are what is truly the issue here. The fact that our political environment has turned to merely entertainment and the media is just making its profits off of that revenue stream. Until we figure out some way in which to wrest our information away from these media outlets, unless we figure out some way to end the kayfabe that is our political establishment, unless we find some way to end the media's propagation of partisanship in this country, we're not going to be able to escape the grips of gridlock and devastation that have reigned in the US for the past 20 years. However, if we're all able to wake up to this in this time of crisis, maybe it isn't too late to do something. To support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more.
your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to TriviumStudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. That's sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again.